Let's take our Bibles, if you would, and let's open to the book of Colossians, chapter 3. Colossians, chapter 3. Now, we're coming up on Easter Sunday, and so you want to make sure to be right here in your place for Easter Sunday. Uh, Lord willing, we plan to have as our guest, Brother Seth Johnson, which is a grandson of our missionary, Brother Amos Johnson. And so we're excited to have him with us as an evangelist and speaking for us. And uh, we hope to hear more, more of the good stuff of what God's doing uh, with his granddad and the prison ministry there. And uh, the last prayer letter I read was really good, so it should be up in the hall by now. If not, you watch for it and be sure and read that. And uh, they're, they're, the Lord's using them and doing a great work there. So we're excited to be a part of that by partnering with them uh, through our missions program. And uh, that's always a joy. You know, like the Bible talks about hearing good news from a far country. It's good to hear that good news. And it's great to have as our special guest, little Arthur today. Amen. We're glad to see you all in the service. Kurt and Claire are back and Arthur's here and we're excited about that. Good to see all of you here today. We're glad you made it. And uh, hoping the Lord will just continue to, to use this service to encourage your heart. Amen. Colossians 3, have you found your place? Let's stand together for the reading of God's Word. We'll have prayer and then begin reading in verse 1. Verse number 1. So let's pray together. Father, how we love you today. How we thank you for your goodness and your grace to us, Lord. Thank you for your precious Word. My, how we need it, Lord. So we come to you, Lord, just uh, looking for strength and grace today. And we just ask that you bless our service. Speak to our hearts. In Christ's name we ask. Amen. Amen. And Brother John also with us. And Miss Kathy, we appreciate having you all with us today. Not preaching out somewhere. And uh, so good to see you all here this morning as well. And I know many others. I can't name everybody or we'd just be here all day doing that. So let's get right in. Verse number one, the Bible says in Colossians 3, If ye then be risen with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ sitteth on the right hand of God. Set your affections on things above not on things on the earth. For ye are dead, and your life is hid with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, shall appear, then shall ye also appear with him in glory. Mortify, therefore, your members which are upon the earth, fornication, uncleanness, inordinate affection, evil concupiscence, and covetousness, which is idolatry. For which things sake the wrath of God cometh on the children of disobedience, in the which ye also walked sometime when ye lived in them. But now ye also put off all these, anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy communication out of your mouth. Lie not one to another, seeing that ye have put off the old man with his deeds, and have put on the new man, which is renewed in knowledge after the image of him that created him. Where there is neither Greek nor Jew, circumcision nor uncircumcision, Barbarian, Scythian, bond, nor free, but Christ is all and in all. Put on, therefore, as elect of God, holy and beloved, bowels of mercies, kindness, humbleness of mind, meekness, long-suffering, forbearing one another and forgiving one another. If any man have a quarrel against any, even as Christ forgave you, so also do ye. And above all these things, put on charity, which is the bond of perfectness. And let the peace of God rule in your hearts, to the which also ye are called in one body, and be ye thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, in all wisdom, 
teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. And whatsoever you do, in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God and the Father by Him. What a great passage. We could read all of it, but I'll stop there. And I want to preach from this passage of Scripture, from this chapter actually, what Paul had in mind when he wrote about what I'm calling commands for Christians. Commands for Christians. Thank you so much. You may be seated. And I don't want you to think of this in a militant type of way. Commands for Christians. The idea here is that Paul is really just writing to us about things we should be doing as believers. In other words, he was drawing a map for us and he was saying, this is the way to live the Christian life. These are the things that Christians are supposed to be doing. He's laying out, he's delineating our responsibility so that you and I can, can maybe see more clearly and understand a little bit better what's, what's expected of us as a believer in Christ Jesus. So how should a Christian behave anyway? So he tells us in chapter 3. And these are the commands that we're going to look at. So looking at command number 1, notice in verse number 1, he says, If ye then be risen with Christ, seek those things which are above where Christ sitteth on the right hand of God. Hey, doesn't that um, really narrow down the scope of our spectrum, the things we should be looking at, and the things that we should put our emphasis on? He's telling us that we should be heavenly minded. Seek those things which are above. You might mark or underline that word, seek. It gives us light of what he's telling us to do here. The instruction that Paul is giving us in this verse is this. He's saying, look for Christ. Look for Christ. Every Christian should be seeking, should be looking for Christ in their own journey, in their own life with the Lord. We should be looking for Christ in our Bible reading. We should be looking for Christ in our prayer time. We should be looking for Christ when we come to a meeting like this and, and, and the Word of God is being given and preached, taught in Sunday school or preached in a service like this. We should be looking for Christ in that message saying, Lord, what do you have for me? Lord, what do you want me to know? What do you want me to do? Look for Christ. Are you seeking him today? Are you seeking the Lord? Hey, you know, I'm going to tell you when the Christian life gets boring, when you and I stop seeking the Lord, when we stop searching for him, when we stop trying to find him in everything we experience. Hey, I'm telling you what, you had a trial this week, you should have been looking for the Lord in that thing. Because, you know, as we read some of the stories in the Bible, I mean stories like Jonah, where it just seems like God's not really the centerpiece of the story. But he is. Jonah ran away from God, and notice how God pursued him and interacted with him. Jonah had some heartaches and some trials, but God was there the whole time. God was orchestrating the events around him, and we should be looking for the hand of God in everything we experience. Hey, you know the Bible says the, the mariners, the, the sailors, it says they threw him overboard. But then later it says God threw him overboard. So was it them or was it him? Yes. God used them to do his bidding. God was after. Look, Jonah might not have been seeking God, but God was seeking Jonah. Hey, and you know what? God's looking for you today. God's seeking you. God wants you to do his will. God wants you to be involved in his work. God wants you to be living the Christian life in a, in a successful way. God wants you, wants you to be uh, carrying on with those things that will bless and influence others for the Lord Jesus Christ. God's going to be working in your life. 
He has a master plan. And you may not understand it. You may not know it. Uh, you, you may not understand what he's trying to accomplish. But God is always at work in your life. Are you seeking him? Are you looking for him? Command number two is found in verse two. Notice he says in a similar fashion, he says, set your affection on things above, not on things on the earth. So we're to look for Christ. We're to seek him. That's why in James 4, 8, it says, draw nigh to God and he'll draw nigh to you. Notice brother James put the, he put the effort on you. When you take that step toward God, then God takes a step toward you. Draw nigh to God, then it says he will draw nigh to you. Amen. God, God honors that effort that we put forth. Matthew 6, says, seek ye first the kingdom of God. And we're to be seeking to be the right kind of Christian by putting God first in our life. So we're seeking the Lord. But now in verse 2, he says, not to seek, but he says to set. Set your affection on things above, not on things on the earth. You might mark that word set. What does that mean? How do we do that? Well, the Bible has the answer. We set our affection on things above by investing in things above. How do you get your heart in a certain place? You know, sometimes we have to just admit. Sometimes we have to be honest. Hey, we got this old flesh we carry around, and sometimes we just have to be truthful with God and say, Lord, I read my Bible, but my heart just wasn't in it. Lord, I came to church, but my heart just isn't here. Lord, I tried to pray, but my mind was wandering. My heart's just not there. Why? Because our hearts are wicked and carnal and deceitful. That's why. And our hearts don't always do what's right by nature. So what do we have to do? We have to set our affection. We have to do something to turn that in the right direction. What do we do? Look at Matthew 6 with me for a moment. Let's take a little detour and let's look at a Bible diagnosis, a Bible recipe How to get your heart in the right place. How do you do that anyway? So the Bible says in Matthew chapter 6, beginning in verse 19, notice what the Bible says. It says, Lay not up for yourselves treasures upon earth, where moth and rust doth corrupt, where thieves break through and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust doth corrupt, and where thieves do not break through and steal. Verse 21, here's the key right here. He says, for where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. So we get our heart moved in the right place by putting our treasure there first. So he's saying, invest and your heart will follow. Right? So look, this is is the reality, all right? You might make a side note right here because here's where we get stumped. We think that we need to be feeling right before we serve God. We think we need to be feeling it before we go to church. We we think we need to be feeling it before we read our Bible or pray. But actually the opposite is true. So what God is telling us is, do right and the feeling will follow. Don't wait until you're motivated to do something good. Do something good anyway. And you will find that the feelings follow and they come after. Then you feel good about what you did. Right? The feelings follow. How many of you ever get up on Monday morning and you don't feel like going to work? Right? (laughs) Do you wait for the feeling? (laughs) No. We go anyway, don't we? How can we understand that principle in the secular world, but we don't understand that principle in God's economy, right? 
hey, guess what? The same, the same thing is true about God and serving God and going to church and reading your Bible and doing right. Whether you feel like it or not, do the right thing. And guess what? Those feelings will follow. You know, we go to work on Monday morning and somewhere during the day it just kicks in, doesn't it? We get in there, we do what we're supposed to do. And by the time we go home, we're like, whew, I made it. I survived Monday. No matter how bad it was, we made it. And by the time we go into Tuesday, boy, we're in gear and it's ready to go. But look, the reason why we're ready for the rest of the week is because we win anyway. And sometimes you have to do that spiritually. You make the investment and then your feelings follow. So keep doing right. Keep reading your Bible. Keep going to church. Keep praying. And the feelings will eventually come. Don't ever wait on your feelings. If you do that, you'll never be successful in whatever it is you're trying to do. And you're not going to be a successful Christian by accident. You're not just going to fall off the porch and be right with God. We have to work at it. We have to make those investments. We have to try very hard. We have to do it when we don't feel like it. Because that's how, that's how things work in this life. That's the way we're wired as human beings. Because we, when, when we're trying to do something spiritual, you've got to remember we're dragging behind this old carnal nature of ours. And we have to overcome that in order to do what God wants us to do. So the Bible says that we should set our affection. What is he telling us? He's telling us to not only look for Christ, but long for him. Yearn for him. What does the Bible say? God said, you'll seek me and find me when? When you search for me with all your heart. Hey, are you longing for God? Is there any desire here? You know what? You can search, but if there's no desire to find, then you probably won't. Isn't that right? I don't know anybody who ever lost their car keys, who searched for them without desire. Desire kicks in pretty quick on that, doesn't it? Especially when you're late for work. You add those two together, and desire goes through the roof. I mean, all of a sudden, man, you're yanking the cushions off the couch, flipping it over. You're, you're going nuts looking for those keys, right? Hey, when was the last time you went nuts looking for the Lord in your life? When was the last time you turned over some stuff trying to find God and trying to find his will, trying to do what's right? We need to do that. There's a time for that. Just like there was a time for Jesus to overthrow the tables of the money changers. Hey, there's a time to just overturn some stuff and get right with God and start doing what we're supposed to be doing. And we have to be willing to knuckle down and be disciplined enough to do that when the time comes. So look for Christ in your life. Long for him by laying up treasure in heaven. Invest in the right things and your heart will soon be there. Your feelings will follow, I promise. But the rest of this chapter, he spends on the last commandment. You didn't know there was only three, right? Paul was a good Baptist preacher. <clears throat> three points in a sermon, in a, in, a, in, a, in a poem, maybe. So look what he says here. In verse 5, he starts telling us how. And the last command, I'm going to sum up this way. Look for Christ, long for Christ. And then he spends the rest of the chapter telling us how to live for Christ. Live for Christ. Hey, do you know as a Christian, it's not enough to seek the Lord. It's not enough to long for Him, to set your affection. If that's all you do, 
you're stopping short of the reason why we do that in the first place. And that is so that we can live for Christ. You've heard the expression, someone being so heavenly minded, they're no earthly good. That should never happen. The most heavenly minded person I ever knew was Jesus. But no one would say he was no earthly good. Isn't that right? The reason is because he walked with his feet on the ground. You see, he didn't just look for God and he didn't just long for heaven, but he lived it. He lived the kind of life that you and I are supposed to live. He, he, he was an example for us and he set that example very well. Paul is telling us in the rest of this chapter that we need to live for Christ. You know, that makes such a difference in our life. That's where our lives be a blessing uh, you know, to others. That's where our lives become an example when we live out the faith and when we, when we are a demonstration of what Christianity is supposed to look like. Not that we're perfect by any means. None of us ever are or will be. But when we do our best to do what's right and to do the work of God and the will of God, just to live for Him. You know, we talk a lot about dying for the Lord, but God's not called us, most of us to die for Him. God's called most of us to live for Him. See, He died for us so we could live for Him. And Romans 12, 1 and 2 says God's will for us is to be a living sacrifice. That means we're to live for Christ. Notice what he said in verse 5. He said, Mortify therefore your members which are upon the earth. And then he names the works of the flesh, fornication, uncleanness, inordinate affection, evil concupiscence, covetousness, which is idolatry. So here Paul's saying mortify your members. He's talking about the carnal nature within you. He's talking about the flesh. If you were to go to Romans chapter 7, you'd read where Paul had a little struggle there where he describes it as a daily struggle, an ongoing struggle. Paul the apostle said, sometimes the things I know I'm supposed to do, I don't do. And he said, sometimes the things I'm not supposed to do, I find myself doing those. And I'm paraphrasing for time's sake. But the, but the chapter describes a very real tug of war going on in his heart, in his life, in his mind, between the things of the flesh and the things of the spirit. You and I have that same tug of war. If you're saved by the grace of God, you're going to have that power struggle going on in your life all the time. It's one that will never be over until you enter heaven's gates. The struggle that you have to uh, 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 contend with is the challenge of giving in to the spirit and not to the flesh. And we all have to face that challenge. It doesn't happen on its own. It doesn't happen by accident. We have to make a willful choice to follow God and to lean toward the Spirit and to do what's right. So Paul is saying mortify or, or kill or let die the things of the flesh. Why? So that you can live in the Spirit, so you can do what God wants you to do. He was saying now that we're free from sin. Romans 6.22 says that we're, we're, we've been made free from sin so that we could be the servants of righteousness. You see, now, because we're saved by God's grace, we have the power to choose. We can say no to the flesh because that's not all there is anymore. It's not just acting on instinct. Now we have two natures. Through salvation, God imparted to us a divine nature and we can now listen to the Spirit and we can yield to the Spirit. We can overcome the flesh and we can do what's right. And that's really the essence. That's the challenge of the Christian life. 
Let's walk through the little chapter here. Notice he said, mortify your your members in verse 5. Then he said in verse 8, watch this. He said, but now you also put off all these. So how do we live for the Lord? Well, we got to put off some things. Before we get into that, let me just show you what the concept again and show you what's happening here. Look at 1 Peter chapter 1, would you? 1 Peter chapter 1. And notice in verse 14, and we'll read a few verses. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 14. Look what he says here. As obedient children, not fashioning yourselves according to the former lusts in your ignorance. But as he which hath called you is holy, so be ye holy in all manner of conversation or in all manner of living. All right, so he's saying in verse 14, don't live like you used to live before you met Jesus. Don't shape your life like you did when you were lost. But now that you know Jesus, he's saying, verse 15, be holy, and the way you do that is through your manner of living, through your lifestyle. Notice in verse 16, because it is written, be you holy for I'm holy. God wants us to reflect him and his existence in our life. And if you call on the Father who without respect of persons judgeth according to every man's work, past the time of your sojourning here in fear, for as much as you know that you were not redeemed with corruptible things such as silver and gold from your vain conversation received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as a lamb without blemish and without spot. So Paul was saying we were redeemed from all that. We were saved from that life by the precious blood of Jesus, which has the power that we need to overcome all of those things. It's been given to us. What a blessing is that? Notice, if you would, in Philippians chapter 1, right before the book of Colossians, Philippians chapter 1, in verse 21, notice it says, Paul said, for to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. And then he talks about, he gives a little contrast between living in the flesh and all of that. We won't get into that Uh, for time's sake this morning. Let's go back to our text, Colossians 3. Look at verse 8. He says, put off all these. Now, Paul's going to describe the works of the flesh, the things that come out of that carnal nature that you and I have. Put off all these, anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy communication out of your mouth. Look, if you find that when, when the world bumps you and life gets turbulent, if you find that these things are the first things that pop out quickly, then what that's going to tell you is the flesh is strong in your life. you got, you got some work to do so you can die to all of that. Right? Now look, eventually all of us feel this. But if your first inclination, for example, is to get angry... Okay, then guess what? You have the realization now that you've got some work to do because Paul said, put that away. Put off that. Die to that. Anger shouldn't be the first thing that pops up. Right? So when that happens, we, it, it's an indicator to us that we have some work to do. Notice verse 9, he said, lie not to one another. All right? Hey, listen, some of these things are maybe more of an issue for some people than others. But all of us have work to do if we're going to put these off like, like the Bible says. He said, put, put those away. The works of the flesh, die to all that. Notice in verse 12, he said, put on, therefore. So first we're to put off some things. Now he said, put on some things, therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved. Then he talks about the works of the Spirit. He's talking about the bowels of mercies. He's talking about kindness, Hey, you know what? Kindness is the first thing that ought to come up 
in situations in life instead of anger and malice and wrath. Someone bumps into you at work or they mistreat you at work. The first thing that ought to come to the surface is kindness. And if that's not happening, then that means you're more full of the flesh than you are of the spirit. So guess what? You got some work to do to bring that into perspective. He talks about humbleness of mind, meekness, long-suffering. Why is humbleness of mind important? Because you can't be kind to someone who's been unkind to you if you're not first humble. Two people bump into each other in the hallway. What has to happen? Somebody's got to say, oh, I'm sorry, excuse me, and back up. Help yourself. Go, go ahead. You first. Because if both people come to each other with this, you're in my way, well, guess what? Now you have strife and contention. There's about to be a fight. Isn't that right? That's the workings of the flesh. That's what Paul's telling us to put off, die to that, get rid of that stuff. Put this on, try kindness, humbleness of mind, meekness, long-suffering. You say, boy, that guy gets on my nerves. Okay. Have some long-suffering. And while you're building that long-suffering up, guess what? Put some distance between you and that guy. That's the smart thing to do. Right? Don't try to fake being spiritual because that ain't going to work. And get right up close to that when you know it rubs you wrong. Just back up. Back up and give it some space. Hey, there's some people you just got to love from a distance while you work on building up kindness and long-suffering. So you can be more like Jesus. Amen? Be smart. Hey, they say work smart, not, not hard, right? That, that's true in God's work. The works of the Spirit. We see them here. Verse 13, look what he says. Forbearing one another, forgiving one another. If any man have a quarrel against any, notice, even as Christ forgave you. I know what we say sometimes when we think about others we're having a fight with, and we say, boy, you know, I, I, know, I, know, I know I should forgive them. I know I shouldn't hold a grudge, but, but uh, they don't deserve forgiveness. Well, guess what? You didn't either. I didn't either. We didn't deserve forgiveness when Christ forgave us and set us free from sin, and saved us by His grace, and brought us into the family of God. We didn't deserve that. The Bible makes it very clear that we were sinners without God. The Bible makes it very clear the wages of sin is death. What we deserved was death and punishment and hell fire, not the grace of God and the love of God. We didn't deserve to have the Son of God die on the cross for us to save us from our sins, but He did. He loved us when we were unlovely. He forgave us when we didn't deserve forgiveness. And you know what? To break the chain of sin and to overcome the quarrel, somebody has to be the bigger person and step in and forgive. Notice what the text says. It says to forgive. It says, as Christ forgave you, so also do ye. You know why Christ forgave you? Not because you deserved it. Well, this is a tricky one. He died on the cross. Catch this out. He died on the cross to pay for your sins. And he did so before you ever asked. 
Now I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna just I, I don't I can't I can't preach on this, but but I'm gonna I'm gonna throw you something here that's you're gonna need to save for later. Sometimes we forgive somebody, but we don't extend that forgiveness. And the reason we don't extend that forgiveness is because, just like the way salvation works, Christ died on the cross. He paid for the sins of every man, period, the whole world through. The Bible teaches that. There's no doubt about that. Is everybody going to heaven? Has everyone been forgiven? No. So why is it that Jesus died for everyone? He paid for the sins of everyone, but not everyone's going to heaven. There's one thing that stands in the way, and that is their will. They must choose to receive him and receive what he did, to accept his work on the cross as their payment of sin. God's not forcing anybody to heaven. God's not going to make the payment automatic and just take them to heaven anyway, assuming they want to go there. God's not going to do that because he gave us a free will. So the grace of God does not violate the free will of man. They go together. So what happens when you and I forgive someone and extend that forgiveness before they ever come to themselves and realize there's a wrong and ask for forgiveness? Well, here's what happens. We give license to their wrongdoing. We have to be careful about that. So when we forgive, what does that do? It eliminates the grudge here. And it allows us to continue to be kind and long-suffering with a person. But we don't necessarily have to pronounce all that forgiveness to them. Does that that make it clear? A little more clear? All right. And how we deal with that is going to have to be another sermon or I'll get bogged down right there. But even if we don't announce it and even if we don't tell them you're forgiven, we let it go in here. We bury the hatchet. We don't hold a grudge. We go ahead and release that. We forgive because Christ, just like Christ forgave us. And that allows us to continue to do what God wants us to do, to, to forgive, to have kindness, long-suffering, to be meek with them, to be humble without becoming bitter and angry. So we put off the works of the flesh. Now we're putting on the works of the Spirit. Verse 14, he said, above all things, put on charity. Charity is love in action. It's not the feeling of love. It's the demonstration of love. Charity is, is supposed to be real love, but it's, it's real love shown, not just real love felt. Does that make sense? So he says, on top of all this stuff, be sure to put on charity. And charity is the reason why we forgive and let that go. We don't hold a grudge because if we did, we would never be able to love like we're supposed to. And love is the motive for all of the other things to follow, to flow from. Then in verse 16, Paul says, if you're going to live for Christ, you're going to have to let in some things. There's some things that you need in you in order to do this. You can't do this on your own, in your own strength, in your own power. You're not going to be able to do it. So he says in verse 16, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. 
In all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your heart to the Lord. Look, the truth is, if you and I don't have, if we're not richly saturated with the word of God, if we don't have the principles of this book in our hearts and minds, it's going to be really hard for us in life to live out the principles that God is saying we should live by. It's going to be real hard for you to love somebody that don't love you back. Unless you have a lot of this book living inside of you. And a lot of the grace of God covering you. We need that, don't we? So that's why Paul said, let this book dwell in you richly. That's why we need to read it and memorize it and study it, meditate on it. So that it can. Because in verse 18, he says, not only are there some things that you need on the inside. He said, there's some things that you need to, that you need to let out. And again, you can't, you can't release these unless you have the Word of God richly within. Notice, in verse 18, he begins a long list of things we're supposed to release, things we're supposed to let out, things we're supposed to do, in other words. So he says, in verse 18, Wives, submit yourself to your own husbands. Verse 19, he says, Husbands, love your wives. <clears throat> By the way, this isn't the feeling love this is the demonstration, the action, the showing love. That's a verb. He's saying you need to do this, right? <clears throat> so this kind of love is to be seen and felt and known. Notice he says in verse 20, children, what? Obey your parents. In verse 21, he says, fathers, provoke not your children to wrath. Right? By the way, look at verse 21. Every man ought to know that verse. There's a warning right here because there, there listen, there is, the, there is such a thing as the wrong kind of leadership. And this angry dictator leadership kind of stuff is not of God. And that's why he says right here, fathers, provoke not your children to wrath. You know, when we study the subject of leadership, I'm tired of people saying about, about people like Hitler, oh, he was a good leader. No, he was not a good leader. Adolf Hitler was not a good leader. Do you understand that? I don't care how many people followed the man. He was not a good leader. We need to correct our vocabulary. Let's wise up a little and study the dictionary if you have to, to learn how to describe that correctly. He had a big following, but he was not a good leader. And the reason he was not a good leader is because of the principles he taught. Because of the violence he inflicted on the innocent. He did not even value human life. Adolf Hitler was not a good leader. We need to come back to our values and quit giving praise and credit to the vilest of men. Just because they could amass a following. And by the way, in the end, his following regretted following him. Many of them wanted nothing more than to get out of there. What does that tell you about his leadership? He was not a good leader. And you know what? Fathers who provoke their children to wrath constantly are not good leaders also. And Jesus taught his disciples that leadership under him, under Christ, would be different than leadership in the world. Because what, remember what he said? <clears throat> the leaders of the world, he said, you know what they want? They want servitude. They want followers. He said, but, but if not so among you. 
He said, those of you under me who want to be good leaders, let them be, let, you know, become a minister, become a servant. So if you're, if you're living for God, your leadership is not determined by how many people serve you, but by how many people you serve. It's a totally different perspective. That's because God has different values than the world. And we have to get away from, don't embrace, <clears throat> excuse me, don't embrace the values of the world and expect to be successful in Christ because the two will never meet. So he says, <clears throat> wives, husbands, children, now, now look, servants, verse 22, servants, obey in all things your masters according to the flesh. Not with eye service as men pleasers, but in singleness of heart, fearing God. Verse 23, and whatsoever you do, do it heartily as to the Lord and not unto men. Verse 23 applies to all of those people. So why do wives obey their husbands, submit to their husbands? Why do husbands love their wives? Why do fathers Provoke not their children. Why do servants obey their master? Why? Because we're doing it for the Lord. Hey, look, it ain't about whether your husband deserves to be followed or submitted to or any of that. It's not your husband asking you to do this. It's God asking you to do this. It's not about whether your wife deserves love or not. You're not doing it for her. God is the one who's asking you to love your wife and to have that demonstration of love and show that love to her. It's not about whether your parents are worthy of your obedience. You're not obeying for them. You're doing it for God. God is the one who said, obey your parents. It's not about your boss, your master. He may be a jerk and you may not like him, but as long as you're employed there, the Bible says that we're to be obedient to our our masters. And it says to please them well, not as men pleasers. Why? Because we're doing it for the Lord. We're not doing it for them. Do you know as a Christian, our real boss is Jesus. That's who we worship. That's who we serve. And it doesn't matter who our direct supervision, who our, who our answer to person is here on earth, we still do what we do for God. And that's why he said in verse 23, whatsoever you do, do it heartily as to the Lord and not unto men, knowing that of the Lord ye shall receive the reward of the inheritance, for ye serve the Lord Christ. Isn't that good? It's good as a believer to know that I'm doing what I'm doing for Jesus. And it doesn't matter who's in between me and him, because guess what? He can handle them also. And I've always found it interesting. Did you notice? Did you notice that God comes to the follower first? Look at it. In verse 18, does he address the husband or the wife? Wives, he comes to the follower. Because God made the husband the head of the home. By the way, husbands didn't do that. God did that. So he comes to the wife and says, okay, now I want you to notice what it says. Wives, submit yourself to your own husband. I want you to submit to your husband. Why? Because God wants the husband to be the leader. Then he says, all right, husbands, 
love your wives. Guess what? When things are out of sorts, when life is out of whack, guess who God comes to first? Class? The follower. You know, a lot of times we as followers, we we get out of whack and then we justify being out of place because we say, well, the leader ain't doing right. If you want God to correct the leader, then you get yourself in place first. And then guess what? God will work on the leadership. This is God's way. This is God's order. If you're out of whack too, guess who God's coming to first? (laughs) Before he straightens the leader out, he's going to straighten the follower out. So you can eliminate all that wasted time by just getting yourself back in place, get yourself in line, and start praying for God to work on the leader, and God will do that. Amen? Whoever the leader is, or whatever level that is, all the way up to the top, God can, God can take care of the leader. We have to leave that to him. So he says, live for Christ. Think about it. You want to be all God wants you to be? Here's a simple little formula. Paul says to make, the way to make the Christian life work is to look for Christ. Seek him in everything that happens. Seek him in your devotion. Seek him at church. Long for him. Set your heart on him. The way we do that is make investments. Make investments first, and the feelings will follow. And then he said, live the Christian life. Do the right thing. Get yourself in line there and do what God wants you to do. Live the Christian life and watch what God does. Hey, I'm telling you, there's there's no more joy, satisfaction, fulfillment that can come to anything like, like living the Christian life and being what God wants you to be. And when you know you have those things in order, there's some peace and contentment. There's some joy that comes like you've never known until that day when you realize, hey, I'm making some progress. I'm doing what God wants me to do. Hey, that's real contentment. Money can't buy that. But God gives it, and it allows a man to lay his head on his pillow at night and have some sweet rest, knowing I've done my part. You can have that today by just following those simple commands for Christians and being what God wants you to be. Let's bow our heads for prayer. Father, how we love you today. How we thank you for your precious word, Lord, and the simple truths that are planted here for us. Lord, we know we need your grace, we need your power to be able to yield to the Spirit, to turn away from the flesh. What a strong pull it has on us. Sometimes that old nature just creeps up out of nowhere. It just seems to take over, and before we know it, we've already reacted wrong, we've said the wrong things, we've done things. Now we have to make them right. Lord, I pray you'd give us the courage, the faithfulness, the willingness to make things right, to get in our place, to do what you want us to do. And help us then to see the difference that you can make, not only in our lives, but around and those around us as we do your will. Lord, we love you. We thank you for speaking to our hearts today. We ask you now to help us follow through. In Jesus' name we pray.